And welcome back to another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando. Today, we're going to nerd out on soil science, one of our favorite topics here up here in the Pacific Northwest, as we uh, aim to grow as much of our own food and product as we can at uh, AB Botanical Gardens and uh, my property here in um, on the beautiful Smith River. And today we have a, we're very fortunate uh, to have a guest that's not only um, very experienced in soil science, but happens to be my neighbor, which is fantastic because I am going to be um, picking his brain a lot and having him come over hopefully and check out the property. So selfishly, uh, this is going to be a really fun episode for me. Uh, Jeff Borum joins us today to share his ecological savvy with us. Um, we're going to uh, really dive into soil science today. Jeff is um, really going to share a lot of what he knows. Um, after completing his BS in environmental studies and physics, Jeff served as the soil health coordinator for Stanislaw Resource Conservation District. He now travels across the ag lands of California, engaging interested parties in the implementation of conservation-based practices. Jeff instructs all aspects of sustainable soil management, including design, cover cropping, and composting. Traversing a myriad of diverse microenvironments and farming needs, Jeff has a unique perspective and appreciation for soil and human health. So crucial. So let's get this going today. Bear, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. And uh, Jeff, welcome. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it, buddy. Uh, I didn't realize you were from the hood here. You know, you're uh, from the big town of Gasky, which is, if I look out my window right here, I there's a mountain range and you're like right over on, on the, the other, other side. side. If we, if we go over ship mountain and do the dirt road for a few hours, we'd actually drop down in Gasky. So, uh, yeah, good to have you here. And, uh, I'm really looking for this conversation because we've been talking current events and all this kind of intense business. It has the, uh, you know, the world all in a panic. So, uh, you know, our world up here is much different. We're, we're fortunate, you know, I, go out my door every day and and everything looks fine to me and you know we're doing spring planting and nobody's wearing masks of course all there is is my wife and my dog so uh, you know not much of a problem uh but we never know that stuff's going on out in the world there if my phone wasn't going off there. so this is great we get to lighten the topic today and talk about soil science it's something that sustains us all it's probably the most important topic in my mind you know i have a uh, a background in medicine that I've done for years now. I'm a, uh, a farmer and, you know, we raise our medicinal herbs and, and, uh, you know, I went in that direction after retiring my clinic because I said, you know, I just felt like it's the most important thing facing humanity right now is having good topsoil for future generations. And, you know, most of the people I see in my business that are sick, they're all deficient of minerals and, and all the things, and it's because the soil is, uh, is off. The microorganisms, which are a huge part, you know, in soil health, uh, you know, they're all dead. And so what we're doing here in our little project is, you know, restoring that and creating a prototype and, uh, you know, for, for uh, future decentralized small farms in every location. And, of course, you're the, the expert because you travel the entire state and work with uh, farmers of all types and sizes, you know, and help them, uh, you know, learn how to manage their soil more properly. So I've said enough. Uh, why don't we just get into it? And, and anything that you'd like to start off with that you think is important? And I know Mike and I and our audience will, you know, have some comments and, 
and questions along the way. So uh, we do this real loose here. Just go wherever you want to go. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks to you, Mike and Bear, like for having me. Um, yeah, I can't also claim that I've been up here too long. Uh, been in Del Nord, I think, you know, uh, I do travel the state, but then have been kind of living up here for probably like a year and a half now. And in Gasky, almost half a year. So I don't want to claim local, but like really love to be here, love being a part of this now. Um, the community in Gasky and here in Del Norte in general has um, drawn me here. So like super excited um, to be here, uh, A. And then B, yeah, I, I often like to, to start out with soil with just the general things um, that we often take it for granted for. Like we're gonna, we're gonna you know, kind of delve into the microbiology, um, maybe how that affects human health and soil health, like Mike uh, mentioned before. But I also like to remind folks, like, and I, I'm preaching the choir, I'm sure, with y'all, but like for water, you know, that it can help clean our water. What all the buildings that we're in right now, what are those buildings sitting on top of? Soil. It's an engineering medium as well. And so, and the food that it grows. And so, just remembering, as you kind of pointed out to Bear, that, um, soil affects so many parts of our lives, right? Directly, indirectly, um, and it's very much linked, because it's very much linked to our human health, our treatment of that soil um, affects us as well now and, and into the future. And the things that have happened in the past, of course, are affecting us now. And so um, just kind of like thinking about that and then, yeah, going from there. I think uh, as we were talking a little bit about before, um, that each place was different. I think that's what we were we were mentioning. Um, you were talking about your own um, your own experience with some permaculture classes, um, and then I think I was talking a little bit about um, you know I get to work on the statewide level, but in California, agriculture in general is very heterogeneous. Like if you you can take just urban ag versus row crops and large rangelands, but also you know, in between all of those, even farms that are next door to each other can be different. You have different people managing it. You might have different soils. Um, and so each and every place, it's important to know the land. And I guess that's my push for um, more traditional ecological knowledge, whether that be from indigenous folks. A lot of what y'all were talking about permaculture takes from um, practices that have been around for thousands of years and we're finding out how to integrate them now into our into our current systems um yeah and so i just think it's important to i get to work with a lot of researchers i guess that's why i say this i get to work with a lot of researchers at the university of california and um throughout actually the the nation and some folks around the world um and i think all those things are really important but what i think is most important um, as Western science has progressed, is that we look at this traditional ecological knowledge, we look at local knowledge, knowledge of the land and the people that have worked it, and then substantiate that with Western science. Um, because I do, like a lot, of, a lot of the things I do are coordinate large, large projects on rangelands and on farms, um, and using a lot of the technology, the different tests, and we can get into that, um, for microbiology, greenhouse gases, and things along those lines. But what we're always looking to do is measure, take those measurements and help people manage. 
like, uh, like Gil mentioned before. Um, but to do that, we need more information in each place. And I think in general, in my experience, state agencies and other organizations at the very large, like Bird's Eye View, need to remember that you can't have blanket approaches for everywhere. And just if you teach this one class to everyone, then everything will be okay. Um, and I, I think remembering that is really important, just the heterogeneous nature of not only ourselves as humans, uh, but of the land that we, we work and try to um, work with. Yeah, that's great. And you're working with uh, real farmers that at least have their hands in the dirt and have some experience, right? Uh, you know, we, I, I was telling you before that I uh, took a permaculture class up here and did my certification. But, uh, you know, before that, I grew up in a family where my ancestors, you know, my grandparents were from South America and Italy, and they were all farmers. And so I just kind of grew up with that way of life. We owned and operated commercial nurseries and have just always grown things. So when I took the permaculture course, um, you know, I was uh, surrounded with a lot of students and teachers that had never really done anything other than read books. And it was a very institutionalized approach. And, uh, you know, when I was doing my project to get through the class, uh, a lot of them had a hard time understanding why I was doing things because it didn't conform completely to the book and I tried to explain well when you're here on the ground that wouldn't work here and uh, so but I, I'm sure you had a little bit uh, easier time with uh, working with real growers real farmers that sort of thing well yeah and usually they're they're not the ones you have to tell you know it's when I'm making the presentations to to teams in um, in Sacramento and things like that and getting that uh, getting the point across also you know for folks like us up here in Del Norte sometimes you need to go across the border to Oregon to get supplies like to Brookings or on the east side you know Klamath Falls and Tule Lake being across from each other and a lot of the programs that I work in, grants and other things, won't allow the producers to get things out of state. But again, that doesn't work on the ground. That's an imaginary line that y'all created, uh -huh. and that's fine. But, you know, in reality, here's how it's going to work. Here's how, if you really want to support people, here's how you're going to have to go about it. Um, because, you know, a big push of... A lot of uh, areas, local, state governments are, you know, pushes for soil health, for um, better water quality and things like that. But it's how do we get the knowledge to them of how these things really work so they can really put things on the ground and they're not just checking boxes and, and you know, feeling good about themselves. That's where I try to come into play without, with having some tact and cooth at the same time. But uh, Yeah. So... Um... I'm always a little suspicious of uh, institutions because usually they're getting funded by vested interest. And mm -hmm. so how's the issues with, um, you know, like uh, glycophosphates and all these things? Um, you know, I know our administration just signed in, uh, you know, another 15 years. Hey, go for it. You know, using these kinds of things. And so are the farmers that you're dealing with starting to get wise that maybe in the long run they're shooting their own foot? Um, you know, I probably wouldn't put it in those terms. It's, it's interesting. I think, um, that a lot of folks like the chemistry, right? We really focus on chemistry at a certain point in agriculture. And then people are like, oh, if we can add these chemicals or take these chemicals out, like that's it. 
almost like it was a sports game, right? Where um, just in a simpler matter, like, oh, if we score this many runs or if we take away this from someone, then we get this, this goal, like this end goal. And I think when we had less science and understood things less, that made more sense. Um, now, as we're seeing, and as many of us know, like the world is very dynamic, it is not static. And so it's not that simple. And there are many other things that come into play that we didn't understand before. And so, you know, uh, I think a big part of my job is taking these practices that we'll probably talk about and that y'all utilize a lot in permaculture or, you know, indigenous um, cover crops were first talked about in European history, I think, in 683 BCE by Virgil. But if you go into Asia, it's 10,000 plus years. So how do we integrate these things that we have known have worked for in the past? How do we integrate and dovetail them into the production systems now? You know, I mean, if like I have my rose colored glasses on and I went to Humboldt State, like I'd say spray nothing ever and you could do all these practices across a really large area. But in our current system, like people would go bankrupt. Da, da, da. So how do we how do we make a path? Right. It's even the people I know that are like really large producers and they're gung-ho no-till and they want to completely switch it still took them three to five years and that was they had capacity they had money to buy the new things um i think sometimes in conservation and some of these institutions and also nonprofit orgs and things like that we want people to do conservation we know how to kind of like sell it but we're sometimes selling falsehoods in the way you know i think if i plant planted a cover crop in my yard out here in Gasky, right? Almost everything would come up. There's enough water, there's gonna be sunshine, like the soil here is pretty good. But to tell a farmer that has sprayed for 10 plus years that you're gonna put on a cover crop and everything is gonna pop up looking perfect, that seems like a fake sell, right? And so let's talk about the actual planning and trajectory of how those things are going to go um, and how do we work together? I think my big thing, I was talking about this with somebody yesterday or, or a couple days ago, is working, working on the things we agree on. Because I can find a lot to disagree with, on a, with a lot of people, uh, you know, any day. Parents, girlfriends, people that are closest to me. And so what can we agree on to, to work, to get towards um, some of these practices that we talk about that we do feel and many of us do know and many of us are studying that aren't going to be you shooting yourself in the foot anymore. You're not, you know, you're gonna see more life. You're gonna be taking care of the system more um, and more of a systems approach, this more holistic approach, because what we've seen is that just driving in this one idea or these one set of chemicals hasn't been panning out. It panned out for a while and now it's not. So how can we transition? How can we work together to transition? Um, yeah. yeah, you yeah. you said some really valuable things. You know, I uh, had a career in biological medicine where we treat the body like an ecosystem rather than treating diseases. And you get people from all walks of life. And, you know, a lot of them come in with serious issues. And there's no way on day one you say, okay, you know, you're going to be a purist and you got to do this. this and, you know, you have to meet them with where they're at. And most bodies are pretty toxic. And you can't just jump in and uh, do a lot of things that in the long run, you know, would be great. But if you try to do it overnight, people will actually get sicker mm -hmm. and they won't comply with anything in the first place. So you got to take little <laughs> baby steps. Like you say, make a transition, 
you know, be able to perceive where people are at and take them from there and just uh, do a patient process. And I've, uh, you know, run across that same issue uh, in agriculture myself as well, where people have some real dogmatic beliefs. And, you know, I, I mean, I believe in doing things a certain way. I don't like the use of certain chemicals and we're, you know, on our own property, just taking, you know, uh, the same transition, you know, to where we ultimately want to be. But you can't just be real black and white and, and just think that you're going to change everybody's mind overnight. So good points. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And I mean, in the 1960s, we were, it was the big chemical re revolution, right? In monoculture. And it was like all the ads coming out where it's like, you know, because they were getting great yields from there because it was the dawn of the, uh, of the, you know, chemistry saving uh, humanity with the population spurt and everything. And it's just kind of like we see in economics, what we see in health. It's just pushing the problems down the line for the immediate gratification. And that worked for a time, like you were saying, Jeff, but what we're seeing now is 50% of the topsoils destroyed. Um, we, we've had vast issues with monoculture uh, in terms of uh, how do we remediate the soil issues. So I know that's a big question a lot of people have now. It's like, okay, we, we see that monoculture, there's a lot of issues with, with the chemical ag system. And it's affecting even like small farms and, you know, with in terms of GMO crops and, and glyphosate and stuff coming over into our soil. Um, I know one thing people are really interested in to talk about today is how do we soil remedi remediation and fixing that? How do we how do we get to a point and you were kind of starting to bring it up on a larger ag, you know, size concept, but also just for someone like myself or the smaller home farmer, homesteader. Um, you know, our soil has been affected by that too, uh, because it, everything's connected, right? And I'd love to get into that too, on, in terms of the, how the inner internet of the soil and fungi, fungi and all that stuff. But how, you know, I guess to back up, what are the kind of the strategies you're taking now in terms of both educating uh, people on this stuff and actually fixing the soil uh, with what we know has just been greatly damaged by chemicals and, and, and these, uh, you know, these constituents that they've integrated into the soil for decades? I think first I'd like to say, like, um, we're kind of fixing the soil, but the soil nature usually fixes itself. I feel like that's the best restoration, you know, like if you do a um, kind of like we can, you know, talk a big, thing up here dam restorations you blow out a dam and then people want to fix it even more but a lot of the time you can let things go and and they go back now what we're doing here with agriculture is we still we're still trying to take some things off the land right because theoretically if you were just like oh let's just like heal the land we would we could just stop stuff i think i mean you can obviously push in certain tra tra trajectories and help out um but most of nature, and I, humans are still nature, but most of nature usually will take care of itself in those terms. And so I think what we can do is, like we were talking about before, this trajectory, putting that soil on a certain trajectory so that it helps heal itself. Because we're not going to be able, we can figure out which microbes are in there and add some and add some of this and add some of their food. And that's good, but it's still never as good as what was what was kind of created in the beginning, right? And what was there in the beginning, same with our gut microbes, like, you know, um, yep. evolving with it's that. All, it's all connected. That's why yeah. permaculture is amazing because permaculture, what I love about it is it 
it acknowledges that we as, as creators on this planet have the ability to work with nature in a very smart way and remediate, you know, the dumb mistakes we've made in the past and actually improve upon nature as long as we work with it. So there's a, a great deal of education that it takes, but also we can go in and let nature flourish if we know how to help her out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, and you know, I think that can take a multitude of different forms. Um, and that, that kind of does go from smaller gardens all the way through large agriculture. I think there's different tactics you can use in general, but again, you're still trying to look at it in a holistic, comprehensive point of view looking like are the functions that you need fulfilled um and so you know when we talk about soil it's often difficult because there are there is you know and i i don't know if i'll get these all perfectly right but you know in one heaping teaspoon there's more microbes than there are humans on the planet um and the amount of species are 10 to 50,000 different species of microbes but it's often difficult to perceive that, right? It's not something we've thought about. Like, at least for me, I didn't grow up getting taught those things. And so I often, you know, it's a lot about metaphors. Like I often talk about those as like the cattle, the herd beneath the soil, um, the herd beneath the soil. And so how do we feed those microbes, right? But to do that, sometimes we're putting things directly in the soil, but a lot of the stuff is what we can do up top. Like you're talking about food forests, right? Food forests, right off the top of my head, I'm like, oh, that means diversity, right? So you're going to have diverse things. You're also going to have some sort of canopy and you're going to have some sort of understory. So that creates even more diversity. Um, the fungi that might grow because of that and the mycorrhizae, very important um, from the perspective, of course, of nutrients and, and feeding the plants. But in terms of a lot of what I work on, often greenhouse gases, uh, I think glomalin um, created by fungi is about 40% carbon. And so holding that in the soil is a really large deal. Um, but uh, I, I digress. Um, to healing the soil, I think usually what I look at, you know, we do tests on the soil, we do tests on the plants, uh, especially in agriculture. And then the things I look at the most, composting is a big one because I deal in greenhouse gases. Also, you know, we have not as much up here, but in the cities, especially these waste diversion issues um, that have existed for a long time and now are coming to a head, I feel. And so what are we gonna do about these? composting seems a good way and when I say composting like mature finished compost you can use some of the other stuff for other things but when I talk about it it shouldn't smell like manure or anything like it should smell almost like nothing or good like good earth um, and utilizing that in different ways um, also uh, let's see basic things like hedgerows planting hedgerows uh, planting things for pollinators and beneficial insects which can be done in a garden easily or around your garden right you're not having to take up space because that is often how i have to think about it i'm like for the ag producer i don't want to take out have, make force them to take out a bunch of their cropland just to do certain things but if we can do things around the edges that maybe they take out a little bit for us but then they're leaving the rest for this wildlife, for these pollinators, pollinators that are then gonna help them, right? It's about looking at your garden or your farm or your ranch as the system, like you were talking about, uh, Bear, like the, 
the overall ecosystem and then what can we do and what are the best places to put those things into um, and I think that's what we can focus on when we're looking at how do we help heal the soil I think what Mike was also talking about was education and in that a lot of what we've done has been focused on field days in in larger ag groups um, going and having farmers and ranchers talk to other farmers and ranchers uh, seems to work best. You know, if, if I cut hair and you cut hair, then I'm more likely to listen to you. I think those things are basic. Um, I think when I got brought on to this job, people asked me to look into the workshops and see how we could maybe bring more farmers and ranchers. And I remember going there and I was like, well, number one, we're in fluorescent lighting in a building. Like this doesn't make, this makes me anxious and uncomfortable. It's not my normal jam. I like camping a lot. Even if I don't like work on farms and ranches every day, like this isn't great. Like, um, so the education base, what I'm talking about there is just kind of meeting people where they are and trying to find out their needs. Um, very much, yeah, finding out their needs and finding ways to assist and facilitate. Um, because I, you know, I run these large scale projects um, with a lot of researchers connected and doing economic analyses and social analyses. Um, and I think it's like all very important, but where I see the biggest like jumps and leaps is the cultural exchange between farmers and ranchers and researchers and agency scientists. And when they're all working in the same place and they're all working on land in a single project, um that's that's where you get a vested interest in everyone especially the farmers and ranchers that they see it um and they want it because it can be difficult especially like the larger crews like yes we want hey we want you to change do some of these practices but when you do that in some of these communities you're going to be frowned upon or you know you go to the coffee shop maybe not right now but you go to the coffee shop and and folks are talking about you and maybe not positively because you're changing things up you're changing the game a bit um and you're stepping out on a limb and sometimes that's a dangerous thing to do and so not only providing them with general technical assistance and some funding and this is including urban ag that i work in but also you know it's the psychology of it a big part's the psychology of it and and learning to to speak with folks and find find the relationship find those that common ground this radical center that you can all work on and if you can do that in large groups um, with a lot of people working together with all those different specialties um, and all that different knowledge, that's where I see the biggest jumps in knowledge, in buy-in, and then that actually puts, that actually cre um, facilitates the implementation and adoption of these conservation practices going on the ground. Um, yeah. And then doing stuff so like do this. You so do you find it's mostly uh, maybe smaller farmers or, or just communities in general that are interested in the change? Or do you see any openness happening with um, maybe larger commercial growers? Or are they pretty stuck in their ways? Or, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush here. Uh, but um, are, are they starting to maybe see that in the long run they could even be more commercially viable? by doing this or is it possible to be commercially viable on a large scale with uh, more sustainable practices? I think it depends on how large of a scale you want to stay at or increase to. 
Um, so it's, uh, I have multiple answers for that question. Yes, most often, small farms, urban gardens, um, small farms and ranches, maybe even like 2,000 acres and under, they're, they're often very interested. They, some of the bigger ones have the capacity to do it. Um, and, and so they're, they're probably like my top, like, oh, they have a vested interest, let's get ready to go. As you get larger and larger in farms, if you can't push a profit point within a quarter, then they don't have much of a reason if that is their main goal. Now, some of the farms that I've worked with, I work with a 12,000 acre farm in Merced, and they have an environmental sustainability coordinator. They, they have people studying things, seeing which conservation practices are gonna be best. They're implementing hedgerows in places, they're working with, with hunters and anglers to do conservation. They're, um, they're creating a, a seed company, a native seed company. So there's a big player that is doing that, that they are seeing these things. But again, they have worked with um, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, resource conservation districts such as mine, um, University of California Cooperative Extension Farm Advisors and Orchard and Livestock Advisors. And so again, it's where I see these like large groups kind of working together and in unison with river partners and all the other different things, you see um, a bigger build and people seeing why that could be of interest and then finding ways to make it more profitable. And with a lot of these certifications and things that are coming about, it um, regenerative organic certification, things like that, uh, they are becoming more popular. And you're also seeing um, VC, or uh, sorry, venture capitalists that are interested in social good or social positive outcomes. Uh, um, investing in these types of things. And a lot of it, you know, if you look at Nori, N-O-R-I, or Indigo Ag, um, these people are trying to pay for like carbon sequestration um, and fund it because it hasn't been funded through things like cap and trade, or I think it's like $5 a ton for sequestering carbon, which, you know, per acre for a farmer would be nothing. Um, or for anyone really. And so um, these other private and public-private partnerships filling in those gaps to make it more profitable, to make it sustainable. The thing is, how do we, again, I want to think and have folks think on the longer-term approach. Like you were saying, Mike, like we, especially in Western and Westernized civilization, we want this instant gratification and then that's going to do us something. And you're like, oh, but the best plans, I don't know, in my experience, I've talked to indigenous folks that thought seven, they planned seven generations. Um, the Japanese business plans, when they were doing rice in the beginning, they were doing 200 year business plans. And, and so when you're thinking, yeah, like on this short term, like the longest business plan I've seen as of late was 25 years. And that's a really big company. And they, they feel they're going to be around then, but we don't even think in those terms. So we say we're talking about worrying about our children and grandchildren, but none of our plans even like put that in. So I, I feel like wanting to think about that, um, integrate that more into the, the planning that we're doing now, I think uh, is important because it will also, you know, I'm, I'm often thinking in the head of like, how do I help farmers, ranchers, gardeners, um, all these land managers and folks prepare right? I feel the climate is changing in certain ways. And there are other effects in the environment that are happening. 
How do we best utilize what we have now? How are things changing so that we can uh, create a dynamic system and a dynamic plan and be ready to adapt? Um, I think those are, yeah. Yeah, the I mean, the climate's always changing. That's the nature of climate. And that's why something like permaculture is amazing because it understands through polyculture and working with systems that you, you build resilient systems that have backups and different modalities to counteract any kind of climate change. Um, and so the hubris of Western science has really put us in a predicament here in a pickle because uh, we have, as you said, this infrastructure set up where people are driven by, um, you know, their quarter um, profits. And I will say this, though, something that's been really, you know, and we're going to be seeing a lot of supply chain issues with food, right? Um, and the, the, the general model of supplying large grocers um, is uh, being really affected right now by the COVID issue. And one thing I'll say that in terms of just the marketing appeal is farms that are using um, sustainability, permaculture concepts into their actual branding and going more direct to consumer. And because people are going to be caring more and more about, you know, who they're buying from and, where, and what those farms are all about. And, and it also relates to the quality of the produce you're getting and, and everything. So I think there's a lot of positives that are coming out of our current predicament and it's forcing smaller producers, especially to start rethinking these uh, branding concepts and models and how to go to market. And um, I think there's also a lot of uh, exciting community technologies coming out on blockchain and using the internet, as you were saying earlier about, you know, these communities of ranchers and farmers coming together and, and talking about this stuff. Um, I'd like to see more and more, apps coming out and things that are connecting these uh, producers directly to consumers and cutting out the middleman, cutting out all the carbon waste that comes into, you know, these semis driving to market. And we, we see how ridiculous our food system is right now and how the supply chain is so weak because of it. So soil plays into all this. And hopefully as people rethink this, they can start integrating more polyculture and these more resilient systems so that these concerns about climate change and, and, and such um, aren't as uh, dire. And I will say that I love what you, what you brought up about the Japanese and how brilliant they are in terms of their like 200 year business plan, because that's where we need to get, we need to go for sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so, so, Jeff, does that sound like what Mike's saying could be some possible solutions to entice farmers to make changes because they could possibly make up the revenue by going more direct to consumer? Right. I think that's at least one of the things, yeah, that we're seeing in the, during these times, during this pandemic. I've seen an uptick in CSAs, and I really love CSAs in general. I've just only seen them work well in small places like going to school in Humboldt, right? Like people know the people, you know what a CSA is. Can you explain um, real quick what a CSA is for our community? Because a lot of people don't know what that is, and I think oh, it is yeah. a brilliant model. Yeah. Do you all know the, I'm like, I always just say, is it community something agriculture? Oh God, what is it, y'all? Well, <laughs> Do you know? It's, I'm gonna... it's the first I've heard of it myself, so I didn't want oh. to be so dumb CSA, and ask. <laughs> CSAs are basically where you join a, a local farm like, and you kind of get a piece, you kind of get equity in it, and then you get a box of produce sent to you every week. 
Right. And it could be different. It is community supported agriculture. I was thinking uh, what's the actual acronym? Yeah. But yeah, it's a, and it's a wonderful deal because it keeps things local. Like Mike was talking about, it lowers the carbon emissions. Um, I do want, you know, to not take other people out of jobs, like people that are trucking things, but at the same time, you know, I feel that way with the energy, like, yes, like, take down a dam when that dam is not worth anything and the fish could be getting up river. But then at least in this system, we don't have, where are we putting those people? Like where are the jobs that we put those people in? Like, Oh, we're doing more solar than give them training in a job. Like with other countries, I guess I've seen that. Um, but that being said, yes, like, you know, that reminds me, Mike, of, I work with a, a recycling coordinator in Burbank. Um, down in the I LA area. <laughs> okay, right on. Oh, so he talks about spending approximately over a million dollars a year taking the grass clippings off of the lawns, shipping them out to like Kern County or something to get them made into like potting soil. Then they ship it back to these areas and then sell it in potting soil. And the whole time you could have just clipped the grass and then left it there right so how do we educate folks about that and like that also takes some down off the waste stream we already got a waste stream issue so like how are we what things are we doing and putting into play that can help on kind of both sides of these things and so yeah that that is another thing where it's like oh but the food is already being grown in that area. Why aren't you selling some of it there? There, it's reminiscent also of, especially in the San Joaquin and Central Valley. When I worked there, the food deserts that exist in places where there is food or other things growing, as far as the eyes can see, but there's nowhere to buy it in general. And so that you know, I think there's multiple uh, entities or multiple aspects of society, of culture, food, and health that could be helped by growing your own food more, just knowing where your food comes from, like how exciting would that be for so many people? Um, and having, like we talk about my, microbiology, right? Then that's, that's some of the, micro, the positive microbes and things that you know are going in, even if you do have to get some of your other stuff from these larger grocery stores or other places. Um, and then food security, right? That, that also is gonna help that. So growing your own and then CSAs, um, getting that, supporting your local agriculture and being able to get that. But again, sometimes that's expensive. And um, I also want to bring up accessibility to all, all communities uh, is important. And so um, possibly supporting CSAs a whole lot so that they can have the funds to have. I've seen sliding scales before, you know, depending on your income and your capacity. So there's things like that going on. Um, but yeah, I feel like any time that we could cut out this distance driving that we often do or distance of transportation um, when it comes to anything, including water, would be really helpful, um, could create some large jumps and again, help in multiple, uh, multiple yeah. ways. Yeah. And it's building, well, like the, in, building the infrastructure for that is so crucial. Uh, go ahead, Bear. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you already mentioned Jeff that, you know, people are part of the natural ecosystem and, there's kind of a tendency these days to take ourselves out of the equation and, and demonize ourselves when in fact permaculture does, you know, teach us that we're an integral part of it. And it's just a matter of uh, doing it consciously. And, um, you know, nature is also, uh, you know, we can just our, our societal networks are part of nature as well. And, and if you look at farmers markets, for instance, 
it's just uh, uh, not just a trend, but a real need and uh, filling a need that, you know, where people are desiring more fresh local produce. And it wasn't that long ago that uh, I don't remember farmers markets, uh, you know, whereas now you have them in every city, every town, and people love to go there because not only are prices sometimes better, but also things are fresh and, you know, you can hear music and just kind of meet with the community. So I think uh, just like you're saying outside, and, and I agree 100% that nature is 100% self-maintaining, self-correcting. And the more we leave it alone or at least learn to work with its natural principles, uh, you know, and then in, including that when people in our cultures are left, um, let's just say, less interfered with by people that want to interfere with us, uh, you just naturally have the, uh, you know, cropping up of farmers markets and all the solutions to provide for exactly where we're going in the first place. So it's happening. And I don't think anybody can interfere with that ultimately. Um, And so I I think it's all a healthy trend. And a lot of the things I'm hearing you say is, is, you know, very hopeful. And, and I I also don't feel like the soil ultimately is going to die and the earth is going to be left barren. I think the only question is, um, are we going to be around, you know, populations of people going to be around long enough to enjoy when it does restore itself. So it would be nice if we kind of got wise a little sooner than later. <laughs> yeah, I often people, especially when I first got into environmental science, my friends would ask, they're like, oh, you're going to like save the world. And I'm like, mm, the earth's a big rock. It does not mm. care if I save it or not. It'll be fine. Like I I do these things, I fight for, for humans and for the other species, plants and animals and, and the microbiology and things. Hopefully they, we all get to have this best possible life. But yeah, I'm like, I'm not saving the earth per se. Like, it'll be okay. Um, yeah, so that's really good. Really good point you bring it's up. It's a little pretentious, I think, to, for any of us to think we're going to save the earth. Yeah, yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> Well, everybody can have their point. And what, I hate to keep bringing it back to permaculture, but if you just take responsibility of your own property and start looking at you know, uh, what you have on your own land, and that could be a tiny plot in the middle of the city, or that could be 20 acres in the country. It doesn't matter. It all can start with each one of us. Um, and I'd like to kind of take the conversation towards this to the smaller you know, uh, home gardener, because that's what most of our community is and people listening right now. And I know they have a lot of questions in terms of, you know, how can they bring a healthy soil to their own property so that they can have these lush, amazing gardens. So maybe we could get a little bit of that. We had a question right here, you know, place some resources where they can um, list places for info on soil building step process for doing that. Maybe we can go over a couple little strategies, Jeff, and in terms of that. And also, Jeff, if you didn't mind hanging out after the, the stream, we have a Patreon. Um, I'd love to maybe do, if you could think of one like cool five minute little tip just for our patrons, our paid patrons uh, in terms of soil remediation or composting or whatever. Think about, keep that in the back of your mind because if I'm sorry to spring this on you, but I'd love to drop that in for our paid uh, subscribers. And if you guys are listening and interested in joining our Patreon to support this uh, podcast and, and Alpha Vedic, it's patreon.com forward slash Alpha Vedic. We actually have uh, just a $5 a month membership. And then if you want to join our co-op, 
It's $15 a month and you get a discount to uh, the products and you get um, a little more information, resources, et cetera. And then we actually have an executive membership too if you want to join our monthly Zoom chats and stuff and get more involved with our co-op, which is really where we're moving ourselves. So um, Jeff, in terms of you know, the, uh, myself, for instance, I have an acre here and I'm converting a front orchard into awesome. a food forest and, and things like that. Um, we could get into chop and drop and, uh, and composting. And, uh, of course the big one, which is adding carbon, you know, as much as you can to help the soil. What are, uh, how, you know, what are some things you recommend for somebody who say is just, you know, has land that they need to repair. Maybe it's, a uh, uh, you know, a, a large lawn and compacted soil. And um, what are some things they can do to start turning that around and, and growing their own food and, and creating a healthier soil on their own property? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I think everywhere is different. If at any um, any time you're able to either get a test of your soil or even just dig into it. And like you said, like see where those compaction layers, if you have them, um, look and see if there are any earthworms, you know, if there are extra roots going down um, and how far maybe they go down. If you, if you shovel, you know, kind of deep enough, maybe a foot down, um, if you have time. If not, uh, there are several things you could do. Like with the compaction, the first thing that comes to my brain is uh, a cover crop of type, which is radish. We often use like daikon radish, which can also be eaten. Um, as a compaction builder. And sometimes now, if we're talking, it depends again where you're growing. Uh, sometimes radish and certain things like an alfalfa taproot won't work um, if it is too rainy. But that, um, that would be one of the first things I would think about for compaction is growing something that can break through those things. And one, um, one, one way I'll say that I'm learning right now, as far as if you, if you, there's a really good way to know if your soil is compacted is your weeds. Um, one thing that I'm learning, and this relates bear to what we talk about terrain theory is that the soil as a terrain of our planet, you know, we, we're taught germs are bad, right? With health and that we got to attack germs. Same with weeds. I've always thought weeds were bad, you know, kill the weeds, but weeds are actually- I always wear a mask when I'm gardening. <laughs> But weeds, weeds are what I'm learning are our friends because they're the symptoms of the soil and they can tell us a lot about. It. So if we have deep root certain weeds, obviously it's every, different everywhere you are, but these weeds are actually, you know, we have thousands of, of seeds that are waiting to germinate in our soil. And those that do germinate, nature has a way of having those correct ones germinate to help the soil. So if you've got, if you're pulling out weeds with long root, root stems, they're doing a job by, by they're putting these, these roots down to then turn into compost channels, right? To allow for that decompaction. So look at the kind of weeds you have because those can actually give you uh, really good indicators of the nature of your soil. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anything, you know, the, the one thing that hurts my feelings is when I go around the valley, sometimes then there's just bare ground everywhere. Bare ground is usually like, 
people are like, oh, let's take care of these. I'm like, no, at least there's something growing. There's something holding down that soil. That means there have to be some microbes in there. And like you said, weeds are often, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. They, they're filling a niche. There are fundamental niches that get filled by all the roots in the soil. And so some only grow this deep, some grow this deep, some are supposed to grow deeper. And so, yeah, what weeds are growing there to try and help you figure out what's going on. Um, you know, I think, you know, first of all, I think it's exciting, especially up here, because so many people want to do gardens and things. But just remembering that a lawn could be a garden and that a lawn doesn't have to be grass anymore, I think is a really, you know, one of those key things to focus in on. And then like you were talking about with the food forest, I think one of the biggest things you can focus on is diversity. Um, one of the issues with grass and the, the grass that we've grown since the 50s and the like kind of nuclear family style of a yard, um, it's just that it's a monoculture, right? It's a monoculture and it's not one that gives you food. It's not one that really houses a ton of different insects and biota. Um, and it doesn't, if we're looking at greenhouse gases, grass isn't great for sequestering carbon. But things like trees and bushes and other woody plants are better. And then you can grow things underneath that. And I think it's that diversity um, that I like to promote the most. Because in terms of like what you said, Doc, was that, may I call you Doc? Sorry, I just did that like at a. <laughs> that or bear, that doesn't matter. Okay. We, call, bear. We, call, we say what's up, Doc, all the time. Um, when you were talking about taking these patients and looking at them as an ecosystem, I'd assume that including in the gut, and correct me if I'm wrong, the diversity of the microbiology is very important because as I am to understand it, and this is true in soil and in our gardens and things, there are kind of key species. There's tons and we need the biodiversity. And then there's these keystone species that we can kind of look at. But without all the diversity and without all the diversity of food in there, you're not going to get a well-honed, like well-oiled system going. And so that's what we're looking for is this system. And the things that I've found usually in, from like 20 acres, especially below, like zero to 20 acres, is that when you create um, and insert certain things into the system, uh, and just by changing sometimes plants, and maybe which is then changing the nutrients and microbiology, you're able to create uh, a lot of life, not create life, but you know, bring a lot of life there. There's brown lacy wings flying around. There's pollinators, there's beneficial insects. You see more wildlife, uh, you see more spiders. That's a thing that I look for in the soil a lot that is a thumbs up. You want spiders and, and often earthworms and things. And it's, it's looking for those. And it's about the fact that like knowing you're, you know it's gonna take a little bit of time as we talked about before, and then somehow creating biodiversity um, in your own yard. And I think with food forests and with permaculture, that's already laid right into that, right? Like you need those things. You're also looking at things like bioswales and trying to make sure that you're not overwatering or you're utilizing your water and your nutrients to the most efficient and effective manner. Um, and I think those are the really important parts and um, yeah, how we can what we can focus on and what I focus on when I'm looking at a farm or ranch or a garden or anything along those lines is I'm looking how much biodiversity and where can I pack it into while still continuing to get the things we need out of it. Like what fruit are we taking from it? Like, am I going to be able to clip my kale and it's going to be able to grow here? Um, 
but yeah, biodiversity before I ramble. So I know there's, I know there's a lot of variability and this is uh, kind of dumb and that, uh, you know, there's no simple answer to this question, but for instance, I just planted some new apple trees uh, last year and now I've creating planting beds around them you know, for food forest type concepts. So is there any general recommendations you can make as far as what kind of plants might be compatible under fruit trees or with other plants? Yeah. So it, it definitively depends and you have to, and I don't promise to know all these things and I will have to look them up after to make sure. Um, But like you wouldn't want to plant black walnuts next to other things because it's a it's allelopathic right for something like apple trees as far as i know um it doesn't have that effect and so what i often look at in gardens is like um and is legume uh fruit and root um what am i trying to say rotations uh, like a leafy, leafy vegetable, a root, a legume, and a fruit. And if you're able to get those either in rotation or kind of growing next to each other, that's where you're seeing uh, the best balances, right? Because you have something like a legume that's fixating the nitrogen, and these other things are taking and reaping the benefits of that nitrogen um, and utilizing it for their own photosynthesis and to grow. And so you're having this balance and it comes to the microbiology that works together. Um, and like we were talking about before, indigenous peoples, the, the three sisters of corn, squash, and bean, like the, they had it right a long time ago. (laughs) And so if we can look at some of those things and see how they work, I feel like that's when you can get best. And there's some really great books out there. And maybe that's one of the things I'll share in the extra um, five minutes that Mike was talking about. There's some good books that I like if, that are simple gardener books for Pacific Northwest, um, especially, or they have other specific places in California and across the United States. But um, the one I look at is for the PNW. And um, yeah, just there's a lot of basic things that can be done and that have been known for a long time that can be utilized. And so I would say, yes, that rotation is good. And I will have to find out more for you for apples specifically. Um, what you could grow underneath them. Because in my experience, uh, the apples um, that were growing were in larger orchards. And so different specific cover crops were utilized there. And a lot of them were legumes and clovers and things and vetch for the nitrogen fixation, uh, along with some other um, things like radish in order to like break up their compaction because it was a large orchard, right? They're running over that with machinery every once in a while and they've lowered it. They've reduced their tillage and things, but they're still having to utilize it at this time. And so planting of those things like radish still helps out. Um, Um, Are you finding that on these, um, on these larger operations, this concept of no dig and no till, you know, which we, I think, you know, a lot of uh, home growers are starting to, get keen on the idea of no dig um, to allow for that mycelium network to flourish. Um, Are you seeing that trend grow? Yes. Well, you know, in a lot of conservation practices, we see ebbs and flows, you know, even if you look at like when um, things are written about comparing soil health to human health and the microbiota of the gut and the microbiota of the soil, like a lot was done in 2013 and then you see a big jump a little bit in 2015 and then 2017 and 2018, there's big hits. And it seems like when there's more funding for certain things, there's bigger jumps. That being said, no-till in general has had like slow upticks 
what I've seen take off much quicker is just reducing the tillage. And I mean, the reduction of tillage can be great, but often there are certain, um, the production systems where they're trying to reduce tillage, sometimes tillage, I don't want to say it's necessary because you can do no-till, but to produce at the levels they're producing and to try and transition, the reduction of tillage has helped. Or things like strip tillage in tomatoes were done in like Contra Costa County and like in the East Bay, where it really helped with the runoff. It really helped with the erosion. Yes, they're going to have to run over it a couple times, but they're not doing it dozens of times. Um, and they're not, you know, the, the way the beds are made and things now are different. And so, again, it's the reduction of tillage and what those reductions kind of necessitate for them to do because then it kind of works in the other practices, you know? Like I often think of like some of my like hedgerows or cover cropping, those are like my gateway drug that I give to folks. And then I'm like, well, if that's of interest, like here are all these other things that are a possibility that can have these kind of co-benefits possibly, right? Because we're still in any given situation throwing darts a little bit. It's another reason I like things like permaculture and these indigenous practices. You're trying things out, but you're able to adapt if that doesn't work in your land. And as you were saying, Mike, sometimes that like Western culture, we don't that's not, it's got to be this one thing, and then yeah. we push it forward. Um, and so being adaptable, um, I think helps. I mean, with you would think too, it would be more economical in the end going no-till because there's less fuel involved, less labor um, if you do it right. And they maybe even with the cover croppage, if you get smart with that, you turn that into a crop on off-season. You can, you know. Yeah, you can either turn it into a crop. I mean, you feed your family if it's fava beans. If you're working with certain agencies, they'll only give you funding if it's a true cover crop, not if you take it off. But that's the other thing, too. You can, um, yeah, you can grow it for yourself. You can grow it to sell it. Um, and, yes, the reduction of tillage does. I mean, that's how often I talk about with it with folks is it's redu reduction in labor. It's a reduction in fuel costs. And everybody loves, like, less fuel. Um, and so getting towards no-till is a goal, but it's just really hard in certain production systems right now to go all the way no-till, except for some of those folks, because you do have to buy new implements. Um, and in general, a lot of the funding pays for like seed and it pays for, pays for a lot of nails, but it doesn't pay for the hammer. And there aren't many hammers around the state. And so some of these tools like cover crops, you know, drill seeders, um, manure or compost sling now compost slingers and things if there were more of them around the state it'd be easier to push some of these things out and so it's a comprehensive deal like a lot of the farmers do want to switch to that a lot of ranchers do want to switch to that it's having the capacity and accessibility to equipment and technical assistance right if i just give you a totally new tool and just say wing it um like you might not get the most optimal outcome and then you might be less likely to do it in the end and so it's about having a comp again a biodiverse approach a comprehensive approach to helping folks be at the soil be at the those folks working the land um yeah. in general um so go ahead bear well i was just you go ahead because i was gonna shift gears a bit oh i just want to touch on one more thing with no dig because i've been nerding out a lot with my no dig and i'm really loving it it's less labor it's uh i'm getting better yield um, i mean just in the first year of doing it um but for those folks who are just getting into this that are really trying to uh embrace these practices but are let's say looking at 
a lawn or a really compacted, you know, backyard that maybe has just some, you know, weeds and stuff. What are some ways to really get started in terms of decompacting um, and integrating? We could talk about sheet mulching. We could talk about some different mm -hmm. concepts. Maybe just give a couple little hints and tips on uh, people that are currently watching and listening in terms of getting involved and started with this um, and uh, this practice of um, remediation and and uh, you know getting your compacted soil primed for optimum growing. Yeah, I feel like you know a ton of it, man. So sheet mulching is <laughs> a great one. Uh, compost as well. I've seen in my um, rangeland trials across the state as well as other places can help with compaction as well as increasing water holding capacity and increasing water infiltration. And that's going to be really important, you know, um, so that your soil can not only infiltrate it, but hold that. Uh, and that then helps cation exchange capacity and helps the nutrients stay up higher so your plants don't have to work as hard. Um, and so sheet mulching, composting, anything to cover uh, some of the land and add that organic matter because adding the organic matter um, is going to create a little bit more fluffiness, especially at the top. And then, as you said, then I would look into growing certain plants that might be able to break up that compaction create, as you talked about a little bit before, Mike, the, the aeration that's needed. Your, those plants maybe are going to die inside and leave a decaying area, a little hole, and so water can get in there. Uh, microbes can use that for food. Um, so I think, yes, after sheet mulching, composting and things, uh, moving into growing different crops like radish or um, there's quite a few others that you can look at depending on what you're also trying to do. Uh, Let's see. And then beyond that, I mean, there are, you know, if you really need to dig, well, we we're trying to talk about no dig. So I would say no, we're going to keep well, with the no digging. One yeah. thing with the no dig and some, um, who is it here? Freedom Grower. Thank you for this. He says you can fork and lift. Uh, mm -hmm. So the delicate fungi stays intact and the oxygen is brought to lower layers of the soil. Um, and, and so, you know, taking a fork and kind of, decompacting that way in a more, you know, uh, instead of just tilling it. Uh, the other thing too is worm farms, of course, and getting into creating your composting. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff. And I mean, the power of the earthworm is uh, bar none. Yeah. Vermicomposting is great. Um, I think it can be a wonderful addition. Also there's compost teas out there. Um, if folks are interested in, in creating those, um, I think there's a lot of things, especially, you know, I talked a lot about like these larger areas, but um, in smaller areas on these smaller urban gardens and food forests, I mean, I don't see many reasons not to do no-till in some right. Yes, you can dig in and fork and you're going to cut off some of the edges of that. But in general, yeah, leaving so many of those microbiota living, right, and not killing them off or not exposing them to the sun where they get burned up. Um, I think most everything in these smaller areas, if you are able and have the labor, can be done organically. There shouldn't be almost any need for spraying, really, of anything. Um, uh, and, yeah, if you can find ways to not kill the microbiota, right, and so no spraying, like if you can find, and the digging up, um, like doing a whole sheet, if you have the ability um, to do that, or you can do it in smaller, smaller loads, right? In smaller plots, if you're doing it manually, um, maybe won't have as great of effect, but still anytime you're not ripping it up and, and 
um, exposing them to air and sunshine is going to be positive. Um, and then I think also, again, like the planning of things like hedgerows and uh, things for pollinators and linked to beneficial insects. Those insects are sometimes food for other insects. They are going to help with your garden, for instance, you know, like things like alyssum or other things that bring parasitoid wasps that will then eat the aphids that might be eating your crops. Um, because there's pollinators are beneficial insects, but there's so many others, right, that will be doing work for you. And so that you don't have to spray, you don't have to spend that money, and then you're not putting it into the ground and into our water our waterways, right? Yeah, that, and, that's still and important. Developing, you know, having water baths and, and having perches for critters, getting those little critters in because there's a whole variation of size of critter that is important in mimicking the forest. Uh, the hedgerows thing, um, could you explain a little bit more about that real quick? And I know Bear wants to take, take this to another level, but because um, that's something I'm trying to work in more into my property. Um, what are some What's like a good example of what that would look like in terms of actual plants and stuff? So yeah, it depends on again where you're at. Um, usually, I we'll talk about it in general. I think for here you could do things like coyote brush uh, as some of the larger things. It depends on again where you're at. Uh, in some places that's invasive, but you want some some larger brush so that things, smaller wildlife like rabbits and some of the birds can get in there, right? Because birds, even different species of birds live on different niches of bushes and in the bottom. Um, you want to also then have some, some smaller forbs uh, as well as then plants like the California poppy is always a popular one. Um, and there are other, uh, let's see, I mean, uh, berries. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And up here, you know, like, I don't know, this is would be more riparian restoration depends on where you're but the salmon berry and twin berries and things along those lines, clovers that are low and that that are low subterranean clovers that spring up with a little bit of flower, but you can also do different brassicas like mustards and radish that are uh, facilia things that you want um, blooming at different times a year because then the the insects know that they have food and they'll stick around right they know they're gonna have food so they'll hang out there and then when it's time for any of your garden plants that need pollination or need insects they're already there you're not trying to bring them in like the bugs in the jug thing not that yeah. that can't work Lying but I mean ladybugs like, and stuff right and you're <laughs> dumping them there and then they all fly off because they don't have any more food or, or things like that and then they're telling you to buy them every three months that's not you don't buy them three every three months like in the forest <laughs> right you don't dump people aren't dumping insects so yeah <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, that's something I'm really going to nerd out with is doing hedgerows and stuff. And Yeah, let's um, do hedgerows. And it's fun, right? Um, and integrating berries and all that and seeing all the little critters and stuff. That's fantastic. Um, one thing you did mention too was, uh, uh, and this is something Bear is really good at, is um, making um, different teas, compost teas, and et cetera. Um, how would one go about doing that? And then Bear, I, you can give some of your sense on that too, because I know that's something you like to do. Uh, something I haven't really gotten into yet, but I, I'm really interested in that. Who wants to start, Jeff? Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, my idea of compost tea, just as I've used it, it is 
you're creating a compost, but there is extra liquid, you want to make your compost go farther, um, then you can spray it like a foliar or a leaf spray uh, on some of your plants and they can take it in through that way because you wouldn't, you know, if you have it just as a dry compost, you can spread it below and that helps out. But if you're looking to take it a bit further and kind of using it more in a way as an organic fertilizer, as opposed to spraying on some other foliar spray uh, that you would buy at the store. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we've used teas for a long time and uh, they work great. They, they're fantastic. And you find that fertilizer goes a lot longer because you're not just trying to dump the big three on there. You know, you're, you're more capitalizing on the microorganisms. But in the last few years, we've gone to one of these um, Vortex brewers. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. The original research was done out of University of Southern California, uh, uh, South Carolina. And, uh, you know, in traditional brewing, you want to get a batch in 24 hours because you have a lot of live microorganisms and you want to get them out in the garden before they die. But what South Carolina found was that the dead uh, bacteria also provide fantastic food, you know, and, and also give it uh, the soil that kind of waxy feeling that gives a lot of valuable properties to the soil. So the Vortex Brewer, what's neat is you don't turn it off after 24 hours, you just keep it going day after day. And because the vortex creates uh, a high oxygen uh, environment, it's, uh, you know, it's like a thousandfold as far as the amount of live microorganisms that are created day after day. And so what you do is you just keep draining your little jugs of, of the stuff. You know, they have, these brewers are cool. They have little, yeah. you know, spouts and you can just kind of tap off and then add more fluid at the top. And uh, so what you have is a lot more uh, live organisms that, uh, you know, it's not time sensitive that you have to get them in a 24-hour period because they keep reproducing. And then you also have a lot more dead organisms that provide food for the plants in a different way. So, uh, you know, in the summertime, we just kind of keep that going and, and every so often just add some nutrition to the brew and top off the water. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's nice. It doesn't take a lot of energy. We're off grid. So we, can't just keep appliances and things going all the time. Yeah. And, um, but this is just a simple little air bubbler that, uh, you know, the way it's constructed, it pumps the air in, you know, in different locations around the brewer, you know, that creates this uh, kind of cone to create the vortex. And, the, uh, you know, it doesn't take much energy. And then the air just creates this constant, really powerful uh, vortex. So uh, that's, that's what we're using these days. And it, and it works great. And compared with the, old teas that we use it's when you first go to teas from regular fertilizers uh -huh. uh, you know even organic fertilizers you notice a, at least we did we noticed a big bump in our crops and mm -hmm. then um when we went to the vortex brewer we noticed at least again that big of a bump and then we also use the uh little we call them water imploders or vortex units on hose bibs that you know create uh, you get in the victor schauberger and and those folks had understood, you know, what vortexing water does. It reconstructs water in a way where, uh, you know, it uh, hydrates your body and also hydrates plants even better. And, uh, you know, we noticed that research shows that they, you know, uh, bump about up to 300% uh, plant growth just by vortexing your water, let alone the whole teeth. Anyway, uh, just thought I'd throw That's that cool. out. 
No, yeah. I uh, so how big is your vortex, may I ask? Like I'm just yeah. Ours is 35 gallons, which is okay. plenty for us because you know we'll just yeah. use a few gallons at a time, and you keep it running, and you get a, you know that's plenty for us. When we we had um, a commercial nursery, our last one was uh, down in Petrolia in the Lost Coast in Humboldt. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I was in the middle of the Emerald Triangle, so most of our customers were growers. And you know, uh, in that community, um, we weren't growing weed ourselves because we were, you know, doing traditional farming, and we had, uh, you know, medicinal herbs. And but we learned quite a bit from the weed growers. Some of those guys have taken it to a pretty advanced science. There's some of them uh, both advanced. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. 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 No problem. But we had the, uh, the Vortex Brewer going inside of our, you know, uh, nursery building all the time. And they would just come and fill up their jugs yeah. and, you know, had the, had the same kind of, they, in fact, they, a lot of them stopped making their traditional brews and were just buying the Vortex Brewer. It, it worked pretty good. Yes, I've been able to get into cannabis a little bit more. The folks that I've been working with are on the front edge, basically like showing others like this is how yeah. you think ecologically, like this is how we're going this far. This is what we're testing for. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. like it's really, it's really exciting. And I, yeah, again, it's, it's that local knowledge, people that have been doing it for a really long time and maybe it's in a small area, but they know that area, they know that soil, they know, and yeah, that's so exciting to hear that you've been utilizing that and yeah 35 gallons like if you're able to create that a good amount there's i'm just thinking for some of the producers i work with that sounds like a wonderful thing i haven't personally heard of that so i love to learn about now, they, this stuff but, yeah. they have much bigger units mm -hmm. and the units aren't cheap you could you could actually construct your own but they do a pretty uh, you know slick job making these things so we just got the 35 gallon that's good for us you know we have about eight acres here that we cultivate and uh you know but it keeps us going but you can get you know pretty large ones for larger operations yeah do you have to sorry to keep going do you have to clean it with chlorine or anything is there anything that you anything else that you, yeah. you have to use period Periodically, we shut it off. Uh, we just hose it out, kind of scrub it with water only. Uh, you know, just like in the body, um, you know, there are places in the world that when they uh, wash their surgical instruments, they do it with soap and water, not with like, autoclaving or, or um, you know, all these disinfectants because they know the power of the natural organisms and they actually have fewer infections and problems in, in those surgeries and in hospitals that don't use all the crazy, you know, shock and all kind of disinfecting, mm -hmm. uh, which is in fact creating all these super bugs that you can't kill with a flame flower, thrower, you know? So, um, you know, it's the same thing, you know, you always want to respect, you know, be hygienic, keep things clean, but, but don't go nuts because, you know, the, the binome, uh, you know, you don't want to interrupt it too much, even on the outer surface of your body, you, you wash, but the, you know, people are doing these disinfectant wipes and everything. They're just leaving themselves open for more infection, which might be a good segue, which is what I wanted to talk about. And, and I know we're getting on in time here. So maybe uh, in closing comments, um, I know you're very knowledgeable about making the link from agriculture to human health. And you do a lot of community lectures and things, and, and that could be a huge, you know, long topic. But are there any general comments you could have in closing, just as uh, things that you include in your lectures? Yeah, sure. Uh, let's see. 
I think, you know, and I think we touched on this before, just there's so many links to human health and soil health and water quality and taking care. And I know indigenous folks have been saying this for much longer than I ever have, but when we hurt our soil and water, we're going to be hurting our own bodies now and into the future. Um, I think, you know, for folks, because a lot of folks are like, yeah, we're connected, we're all nature, I get the deal. Um, but to, to understand how the microbiota work in our bodies as well as in the soil and how all of the, all parts of nature, as you look at the different food webs, as you look at how things are structured, like we talked about not how our society is structured, but how nature is structured, it's structured in certain ways and they're very biodiverse. Um, and I think it's most important that we, we come to the realization that um, the biodiversity that is in, hopefully in our gut and that is hopefully in the soil that we need to keep on promoting that. And the only way that we can do that for in our bodies that I know and understand is to take care of that with diversity of the things that we put into it. And so these nutrients, the, like we were talking about, having your own garden, doing your own food forest, uh, being part of a CSA and having these um, this locally grown food that you're putting in your body that's diverse, right? Because that's the thing with the fast food, the McDonald's, the Burger King, it is not diverse. They are not diverse in nutrients. It is a lot of refined sugar. And so that's not feeding all the microbes that are in our body. And so what we feed into the soil and into the vegetables and fruit that we grow is going to have a direct effect as what's going into us. And if we can know that entire like food chain, then the better we are going to be, uh, the better we'll be able to um, keep our health uh, resilient and keep ourselves resilient and resistant, right? And that's what we talk about in the soil a lot, resistance to other pests and things and resilience to bounce back. And that's what I try and do in my own personal life with the things I eat, you know, like I constant with the trying to get turmeric and ginger and garlic and some of these things that I build inside my body um, and kind of have there in perpetuity, hopefully. And so if we can, yeah, keep that focus on the biodiversity and putting bio, keeping biodiversity in our soil, plants, animals, um, and then making sure that that is what's getting into us to feed our diverse bodies. Yeah, I think that's most important. Fantastic. Fantastic. And also seasonally, we eat different things too. That's why if you're growing your own food, you, you have winter crops and summer crops and your body needs different things at different times. And then when you want to cheat a little bit, you do some canning of the apples, right? So you can have them later. And <laughs> this, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I tried to, you know, in Humboldt, I got to do that quite a bit. And it was the first time I really got to experience eating in season. And sometimes in winter, it wasn't my favorite because it's a lot of kale, it's a lot of carrots, and it's a lot of beets. But like, I felt better every single day, even, you know, not eating exactly what I wanted, but eating what was what I needed and what my body needed. And now I have a better sense of that. And I, I feel like because I eat in those ways, like I can feel and sense things in my body, either going one way or another, you know, I think y'all talked about fasting in another um, episode. And that to me, I was like, yeah, some I don't normally fast on a normal thing. 
But when I'm feeling something, sometimes I fast in the early part of that because that's what others have done and animals sometimes do. And it's what my body is kind of like telling me. And so, yeah, I'll stop there. Sorry. Yes. And sometimes you let a plot of land go fallow in certain areas for a while just to give it a breather and recover and do what it wants to do rather than keep cultivating it. Same That's thing. That's right, man. Same thing. We all need a little rest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one thing, too, I'd love that. We're probably going to save this for another podcast because we have some interesting questions about it, Bear, about frequencies in nature and soil. Uh, coming down to the more informational fields, electricity, et cetera. And I know, Bear, that's something that you're, you're getting more and more involved with in terms of soil science. So we had some questions on that. And that, that could be turned into a two-hour discussion there. So uh, maybe we'll save that for uh, a, a new podcast. What do you think, Bear? Yeah, uh, one simple comment. Um, the way I do soil testing is... Uh, through ionization analysis, uh, you tell me if you've heard of that, Jeff, but it's um, Kerry Reams, have you ever been familiar with his work? Mm -hmm. He's a famous botanist and one of these kind of tapped in characters, right? Uh, so rather than just looking at mineral levels and things that were taught in traditional soil science, we um, create a, a mathematical equation based on the elements that we're taking out of the soil and test samples. And of course, test samples, you don't just take one little square inch of soil, you take mm -hmm. multiples all over the place. So you get a good cross section. And then you uh, create those, uh, 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 you put those elements in a mathematical equation that gives you what we call the line of resistance. So there, from that point on, now you're looking at soil micronage and uh, making sure that the micronage of the soil is compatible with the micronage of the, the rootlets so that there's you know, that compatibility and maximum uptake. And uh, so therefore, all of your amending the soil and, and things that you do is geared towards adjusting the electrical properties rather than you know, upping you know, a mineral level just for the heck of it. So, and then it gets into the things we do with bodies too, where we're looking at you know, we get into some pretty crazy wave, waveform physics and things uh, rather than just looking at biochemical elements. So it's mm -hmm. another whole fun discussion. I'd love to have your input on that, you know, but that's that's another four hours at least, I think. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should talk about that side time or another another one of yeah. these or something. I'd love to get into that. I'm on some on my research side, we go into uh, fractionation and um, the isotopes a little bit more, especially when we're dealing with carbon, right? Labile and stable carbon and things. And so, yeah, I'd like to talk to you more about that, about the link with the, the human body as well. I thought it yeah. was so interesting. I'd love to pick your brain on all that stuff. So, and in fact, sure. I'd love it. I'm able to get you over here on the farm someday and hang out. Yeah, man, definitely. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, guys. I think this was a great uh, talk, and I appreciate the time, Jeff. I know you're, you're busy. And uh, guys, if you enjoyed this conversation and want to support our podcast, you can actually go to our Patreon, as I said earlier, patreon.com forward slash alphavedic and uh, help us there. Also go to our website, alphavedic.com, and uh, we've got a whole new site that's about ready to launch with some really exciting new products right out of the farm here, uh, our new Life Force protein uh, line. Um, coming out as well as a whole new C60 lineup and our Illumined lineup coming out later. Bear is also working on his Spagyrix, Jiao Gulanix Spagyrix line. They'll be coming out in summer. So 
Man, we've just been really busy with all this stuff. So please go to alphavedic.com, join our mailing list to get updates on when we uh, launch the new site and these new products. You could join us on Telegram as well. We've got a very active community on there uh, discussing all sorts of fun topics all day long. It's t.me forward slash alphavedic. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And um, if you're watching this on YouTube, please give us a thumbs up, subscribe, comment, share this with your friends. It really helps us out. You can join us every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. on DLive. This is what we're doing right now, live on DLive.tv forward slash Alpha Vedic. And of course, if you're listening as a podcast, please, uh, if you can on iTunes or whatever, give us a, uh, some stars uh, if you like this and give us a comment too. So we appreciate you guys. Get outside, get your hands dirty and start growing stuff. Have a Thank great you. day. Thanks, Thanks Jeff. Thanks so much.